Why does Medlock Church exist? Bring us together in fellowship. Spread the word. She's got the right idea right here. What? What did she say? I don't like Bobsy. Glorify God. Okay, now notice. God's glory. Okay, now notice all of this is nice and fluffy. To glorify God and holy, holy. Sure, why not? And at the end of the day, we go, why do we exist? Why are we here as a local church? Why did God put us here? And what does God want us to accomplish? And how would we know if we're accomplishing what God wants us to accomplish? Now, that all sounds like, why do we have to struggle with that? For the very simple reason that every decision we make should be guided by something clear and concrete in terms of why is this church here and how would we know if we're accomplishing what God put us here to do? All right, so here's what we believe Medlock Church exists to do. And actually, I believe every church should exist to do this. It's to grow a family of believers who are together becoming more and more like Jesus. God tells us in the book of Romans that he has predestined us to become just like Jesus. And when Jesus returns, we will be like him, for we will see him as he is. But in the meantime, God's objective for us, for you and for me, is that we would become daily more and more like Jesus. Jesus, he's got a full agenda for our lives. It's not that God just saves us and goes, okay, go ahead and live your lives on earth. Finish out your time because you've got your place in heaven. When you die, you can come up here. God has got a clear objective for us as a church. And that is that our objective should be that we could answer the question every year, are we becoming more and more like Jesus? And notice the word together. We do it together. And the way we do it is by cultivating a relationship with Christ Jesus because he's the source of life. Okay? Without him, we can do nothing. But he also told us we do it by cultivating a relationship with one another. It's a dependent relationship with Christ, but it's an interdependent relationship we have with one another. We can't grow to maturity without that connection. Church is not supposed to be just a place you go to on Sunday. Church is an existing body, and it is within that body that we grow together. So we have a dependent relationship with Christ Jesus, an interdependent relationship with one another, but we don't exist for ourselves. We exist to produce fruit, and that fruit is new believers. So we're to have a redemptive relationship with our world. We don't exist just for ourselves. So, a dependent relationship with Christ Jesus, an interdependent relationship with one another, and a redemptive relationship with the people of our world. Now, memorize that, because next week we will continue the quiz. And you go, don't be silly. Well, this is church. We don't do that. Church is supposed to be where we learn, not where we come and go, oh, I got such a wonderful feeling today, and I go, I'm going to live my life. Uh-uh. You, we come together for the purpose of learning and changing and growing and accomplishing God's purposes in the world. It's not my job to be an ecclesiastical entertainer so that you come here on a Sunday and we go home with warm fuzzies and feeling good. I don't want to stand before Jesus one day and he's going, you did what? 
You just entertain people on Sunday mornings for an hour? Well done, Raymond. That was a wonderful calling in your life. Not at all. Okay. So, we're calling this series Divine Life because we've got to get a grip on why we exist. Let's pray together. Father God, help us to, to listen as your Spirit teaches us today. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. When I was a child... Our neighbors had a vineyard that grew over our wall. So anything on our side of the wall, we were free to eat. And they were the most incredible grapes on earth. Those who've tasted them agree with me. There is no other grape that tastes as good as a Catawba grape. C-A-T-A-W-B-A, Catawba grape. Actually, I've, I've tried to buy a vine. They're looking for one for me here. Catawba grapes are tiny little black grapes that are sweet and sour. When you bite into them, the flesh is sweet, but then you let the skin, the inside of the skin roll over your tongue, and it's sour. And so you get this incredible sweet and sour taste. And man, summer times were delicious to me because we could eat all of the grapes that came over on our side of the wall. But then we moved away from that house, and years, decades later, I was buying a house when I'd gone back to South Africa. And as we looked at the house, it was nice. It had stuff that we wanted. And we went out the back door, and there was a vineyard, big vineyard on the side of the house. And I asked, the, uh, asked them to find out what kind of grapes are in that vineyard. And she looked it up, and she said, Catawba grapes. I said, we'll take the house. <laughs> I don't care. We're taking the house. And we, we moved in, and it was just the beginning of summer. And I watched as the leaves grew, and the vines grew, and the leaves grew, and the vines grew. And nothing showed up. All summer long, there was just leaves and branches and, and, and vines and nothing showed up at all except little things that looked like raisins, but nothing at all. And I was so disappointed. Now, my dad had grown up on a farm, and he was an excellent gardener. And he happened to visit us sometime around the wintertime. By the way, it's reversed. South Africa wintertime was around July. And I complained about my vineyard. said, there were no grapes there this year. And he said to me, well, did you prune the vineyard? And I said, uh, what? He said, did you prune your vines? I said, I didn't know to do it, and I don't know how to do it. He said, okay. So he came back the next week, and he brought with him clippers. And then we went into the vineyard. And here's what he taught me, is that you go to the stem, and every single branch you come to, you go out two nodules and cut them off. Two nodules, when he was done, I just had sticks. There was, my whole vineyard was just these sticks. I should have brought the stick in to show you. Just these sticks sticking up out of the ground. And it was like, oh, you killed my vineyard. But that summer, those branches started to grow. And this time, the grapes appeared. And this time, we had so many grapes, we couldn't possibly eat them all. I think we had drunk earthworms by the end of that summer. Those grapes grew like crazy. And that's, isn't that an incredible story? Don't you think that would make a great parable? Guess who made a parable out of it? Jesus did. And Jesus told us that God our Father is the vine dresser. And God our Father is at work in your life and mine, working constantly to turn us into productive people. Now, the reason I tell you that is because you need to be aware that he's doing this. Whether you like it or not, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, God the Father is at work in your life, and he's pruning you. Jesus says, my father is the vine dresser. 
And the reason for a vine dresser, a gardener, is to promote the growth of, of, of his vineyard and pruning the vineyard when needed. Notice that? Promote the growth and sometimes pruning when necessary. But I need to, before we deep, dig too deeply into this, I want to point out something. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. We're going to see that God adopts us as his children and we can call God our father as well. But there's a very specific thing that we must notice here that Jesus says, my father is the gardener. He doesn't say to them, your father or our father. He says to them in this entire context, he always talks about God as my father. In order to reinforce in our minds that we need to understand that there's a relationship between him and the father that is unique that we will never share. There's lots of religions that teach we're all gods or that if we're going to eventually become gods, that is absolute nonsense. We will never become gods. There's only one God, and he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now, lots of people say, I believe in God. <laughs> what God do you mean? The demons believe in God. Okay? The, 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 the Muslims believe in God. The, the, you know, everybody believes in God. But there is one and only one God who exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in fact, if you'll notice, most of the old creeds of the church will always talk about the Trinity. And in fact, if we want to clearly have in our mind who God is, when you hear the word God, we should think Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. With me there? Because this is our unique God. Allah is not God. Because Allah is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So do people say, well, Allah and God are the same? No, they're not. The God of, of, of any other religion is not this God because none of them will believe that God the Son is God and that God the Spirit is God and that God the Father is God. Now, if you don't understand how there can be one God and exist as three people, I'm sorry for you because I understand it fully. <laughs> are you kidding? <laughs> Our brains cannot comprehend that. But the Bible clearly teaches that there is only one God. And he exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And has done so from eternity. And then he invites us to come into this godly community. When we come in, we're called children of God. But we are never the equivalent of Jesus Christ. We will never be deity. We will never be gods at all. Let me just point out one other thing. There are a lot of people who say, well, you know, you're calling God Father. We should call him God the Mother. And that way, if you have God the mother, then we wouldn't end up with paternalistic societies that are hard and and harsh on women. So we need to call him God the mother. Understand this, that the Hebrews, when they were birthed as a nation, believed in gods and goddesses. All the cultures had gods and goddesses. They all worshipped gods and goddesses. And some of them became maternalistic societies because the goddesses dominated And you go, well, see there, that must have been a wonderful environment to live in because women were elevated. No, they weren't. They were more abused, more abused in maternalistic societies than among the Jewish people. And God revealed to them his Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And God revealed to the Jewish people that he is God the Father. And this is not an anthropomorphic thing that we have given God the title of Father. He told us he is Father. And in fact, the whole concept of Father comes from him down. Are you guys tracking with me here? So, when it comes to our understanding of God, he calls himself Father, not just as sort of some way of, uh, you know, working with human beings and saying, oh, this is this. I, God's title 
is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so as we approach God, we approach him as God the Father and realize that we're never going to become deities. So here's the thing. Many people go, oh, but I had, my father wasn't perfect, or my father was abusive. And I, I, I can't ever, I, it's hard for me to have a good concept of God, of father. Okay, what do you do with that? One, you get counseling. Because there's some stuff you need to deal with. That if, you, if you had an abusive father or a father who was absent, you need to deal with that. But you also need to go to the Bible and learn what a father is really, really like. Okay, you with me there? You can spend the rest of your life going, Oh, I don't think of God as my father because I had a bad father. Don't be stuck. You've got to get over that hump. Because God is your father wants you to know him as your father. And he wants you to be able to grasp everything there is about him. And so he's put a ton of stuff in the Bible describing himself as father. And if you're struggling with this, good. (laughs) It's like, Raymond, shut up. You're yelling at us. God wants us to know him as he is. And he put everything about himself in the Bible for us to know him as he really is. And he starts with the concept that he is the father. For For the Jewish people, he had to communicate to him, to them, that he is the father of the fatherless. In cultures in those days, when you looked at an orphan, it was kind of like, well, tough tamales, friend. You don't have any parents. Sorry, move along. Get out of my way. Widows were kind of like, ah, oh, the widows are getting in the way. We've got to get rid of them. By the way, that's why the Catholic Church stopped allowing priests to get married. Because after they died, the church had to take care of their widows. Isn't that a godly, wonderful, loving thing to do? Isn't that weird? You're not, we're not going to take care of widows so you can't get married and you can't have children. We don't want to, we don't want to deal with... Isn't that interesting? Okay. If you were a widow, it was kind of like, ah, tough tamales. You're, you know, you're on your own. Suck it up and, and, and live. And God said to them, and the poor, God said to them, you need to understand me. That I'm the father of the fatherless. I'm the father of the widows. I'm the father of the poor. Psalm 68, 5 says, a father to the fatherless is a defender of widows. And a defender of widows is God in his holy dwelling. The Jewish people had to learn what other cultures didn't understand. That the almighty God has compassion upon every person in every culture. And so the fatherless were not to be discarded. They were to be cared for. The widows were to be cared for. The poor were to be cared for. He was changing that culture in a way that no other culture went in that direction. The other cultures went in opposite directions. Those who were widowed, those who were fathers, those who were poor were discarded. They didn't care. But God said, no, my people are going to be different because I am different. I'm the father to the fatherless. There's a psalm, and I'm going to recommend that that you go and take Psalm 103 and Psalm 139, but Psalm 103 and memorize it. Because in Psalm 103, I call it the song of the father. He reveals himself. As our father. And he says, As the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. He knows that we're fragile creatures. And because of that, he approaches us with, passion, with compassion and with mercy. Now we have to respond by fearing him and loving him, but he approaches us with that, from that perspective. All of that, by the way, has got nothing to do with my sermon. That's just to introduce you. No. I grasp hold of the fact that God revealed himself as God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Father, we're focusing on today. And God wants us to live in that relationship knowing that he's our Father. 
when you read the Gospel of John, we, we learn that God the Father adopts his children, all who believe in Jesus. Speaking about Jesus, the Spirit of God writes this. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Notice the initiative. God said, I want to adopt you as my children. And if you will believe in my son, if you'll receive him, I will adopt you as my children. The Spirit of God writes this, but when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, and please don't get disturbed about sons, it means children, okay? But because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, along with Jesus Christ. Now, notice what the spirit does. The spirit enables us to call almighty God, Abba. Father, interesting thing in Hebrew is every single noun is traced back to a verb. Nouns don't exist on their own. Every noun goes back to a verb, except that word. It's the only word in Hebrew that does not have its roots in a verb. Where did the word come from? Say Abba. What's it sound like? Papa. Dede, Abba, Papa. It came from the mouths of babies. It was a soft, affectionate word. And God said that the Spirit will allow you to call me Abba. In Old Testament times, what was the name God gave as his covenant name to Israel? Remember, it had four letters, Y-H-W-H. Yahweh is one pronounce, one way of pronouncing it. It's, the, it's from where we get Jehovah, which is a corrupted word. Jehovah was never in the Bible. It's total corruption of, of Y-H-W-H. The Old Testament covenant name for God was Yahweh. The New Testament covenant name for God is Abba. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that the most astonishing thing? Jesus said to his disciples, when you pray, here's how you should pray to God. Our Abba in heaven, hallowed be your name. Do you see what I mean? By loading our mind, displacing the wrong concepts of a father from our mind is such an important thing for us to do. And the thing that God wants us to know is that he cares for his children. What Satan whispers into our ears is God doesn't like you. God, if you get anywhere close to God, he's going to make your life miserable. God's going to take good things away from you. That's Satan whispering in our ear and he does it all the time. Okay? constantly makes us believe that God is against us. God is not for us. In fact, you'll find it in, in churches where we have to sing, God have mercy, God have mercy, God have mercy on me. Like, stop! He's had mercy when he sent Jesus Christ on the cross. We don't have to be begging God to be merciful to us. He's our Father who loves us. And Jesus had to deal with the fact that sometimes we have to pray persistently. God wants an engagement with us. He wants us to pray. And he doesn't want us just to simply say, all right, God, here's my needs today. Thank you. Please fulfill it. I'll see you later. He wants us to engage with him in persistent prayer. 
And so he taught us to pray persistently because God wants us close. He wants us in a relationship with him. But then so that we wouldn't understand why he wants us to be persistent, Jesus said this, which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? Their bread in those days looked like a stone. Flat bread, you can see flat bread around us all the time. It looked like a stone. And he says, which of you, if your son comes to you and asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for fish, we'll give him a snake. No. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Now, when he says that we're evil, he doesn't mean we're as totally corrupted as we can possibly be. But what it means is that we are contaminated in every facet of our lives. When we rebelled against God, that sin contaminated us completely. Some people express their contamination more than others. Let me ask this question. What's the difference between a body that's been dead for an hour and a body that's been dead for a month? The body that's been dead for a month is way more rotten than the body that's been dead for an hour. Which one of those two bodies is alive? Neither. They're both dead. And so when the Bible says you were dead in your trespasses and sins, it describes us as people whose sin has so contaminated us that we were spiritually dead. And when Jesus says, if you being evil now to give good gifts, he's just saying, you as people have been corrupted to the core. There is something that has gone wrong inside of you. And yet, you know to give good gifts to your children. That is a normal thing that parents do. He says, so therefore, understand this, that God, when you pray, understands and gives good gifts. He answers correctly. But always answers for our good. Okay? So there are lots of things I've prayed for for over the years. And in retrospect, I can look back and go, oh, thank you, Father God, that you didn't answer that prayer. Think about the people you prayed God, I want to marry her. God, I want to marry him. And then years later, you look back and go, oh, thank God for unanswered prayers. Okay, if you're not honest, you haven't looked at them lately. God sometimes says no, because he loves us. Sometimes he says, not yet. Sometimes he says, I'm glad you asked. Here's a whole lot more. I love that saying that says, God, if I'd only known you, If I'd only know you as you are. You see, I used to come to you and pray with a little thimble asking you to fill my thimble. If only I'd known you better, I'd have come running with a bucket. Because I'd have trusted that you're going to answer my prayers. And so Jesus is wanting us to understand that my father, I have a unique relationship with him. But he's adopted you as his children as well. Interesting thing, J.R. Packer says this. You need to understand that God loves you as much as he loves God the Son. God loves you as much as he loves God the Son. And he loves God the Son completely. Doesn't mean he he condones our sin, that he looks the other way, not at all. But God loves us with that. And then, now we go back to John 15. God the Father promotes the growth of his children. Jesus says, I am the true vine and my Father is the gardener. He lifts up every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. If you look in every translation of the English translation of the Bible, verse 2 says, He cuts off every branch in me that bears 
uh, no fruit. That is, I believe, the wrong translation. <laughs> so I'm fighting against... That's the wrong translation. The Greek word iro does not mean to cut off. The Greek word iro means to, first of all, lift up. Secondly, to pick up. Third, to promote. Fourth, to take away. They jump to the fourth meaning and translate it, cuts off, because later on Jesus talks about branches, about unproductive people who are like branches that are dead, that are just taken up, thrown in a fire, and burnt. Okay, Jesus said they are like. He doesn't say they are. And that's very important, okay? He doesn't say if you're not being productive, then God's going to cut you out of his kingdom and you're going to burn in hell. Are, are you guys awake? That is not what that passage is teaching. Because the word like just draws a comparison. If you're not producing fruit, understand, you're like a dead branch. What does God do with somebody who's not bearing fruit? He lifts us up. In the ancient world, especially in, in, in the, uh, the Middle East, they would let the vines grow on the ground initially. Very little rain there. And so as a result, they would let the vines grow on the ground so that the leaves would keep as much moisture in the soil as possible. But when the vine dresser noticed it was time to produce fruit, he would lift up the vine, I mean the branches, and tie them onto trellises. And he would cleanse them. And then they were in a position to, to, to grow. So understand that when you see God as your father, see that picture in your mind. That when he looks at you and me and we're not being productive, we're not growing in Christ-likeness, we're not helping him build his kingdom, we're not helping him build his church, he doesn't just cut us off and throw us away. He steps into our life and gently starts to move us in that direction. Now, if we, don't, if we resist, it's the gentle's going to go away. We'll come back to that in a moment. But he moves us so that we will become more productive. And it's him that takes that initiative. He wants you to be productive. He doesn't want you not to be productive. And he talks to the disciples and he says, you're already clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. The only person. Oh, Kimmy, welcome. <laughs> There's our mama. Okay. <laughs> you thought you could sneak in. Yeah. The only person who was cut off was Judas. But he wasn't in Christ. He had never fully committed himself to Christ. So he was the only one who was cut off at that point in time. Okay, so he lifts us up. But the word prune is clearly there because pruning is a process whereby God comes into our lives. And the word prune was also translated cleanse. He steps into Raymond's life and he looks at Raymond's life and he says, Ha, oh, this part of you needs to go. This part of you is inhibiting your ability to grow, inhibiting your ability to serve me. And so I'm going to step into your life and I'm going to cut it off. He's not cutting me off. He's cutting something out of my life that needs to go out of my life. And as you, as you grow and you walk with the Lord, you'll discover that this never stops. You know, you think, oh, good, all right, good. We're done. Thank you, Lord. I'm now perfect. And he goes, uh, okay, what about this area over here, Raymond? And about this one? Okay. God is constantly at work, lifting, encouraging, motivating us, and sometimes disciplining us. The writer to the Hebrew points out 
that just as a good father disciplines his children, so our heavenly father disciplines us. My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. And do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Because the Lord disciplines those he loves and he punishes everyone he accepts as a son. Now, there's two words there. Discipline and punish. Discipline is directive. Punish is corrective. All parents do that. You've got directive discipline that you build into your lives. You've got to get up and go to school. I'm sorry. You don't want to get up and go to school? I'm sorry. You've got to get up and go to school. You're not punishing them for crying out loud. You're directing them. That's what they need to do. But then there's also corrective discipline when they do something wrong. And they need to be corrected in order to learn that they should not be doing that. My grandsons were absolutely horrified at me when I made them stop running in the street. And it was just like, I don't know why in the world their parents didn't do it, but I've got to discipline them next. Okay, my grandsons, when they were small were horrified that I made them stay on the sidewalk and stay in the driveway and not run in the street. And they were mad at me for doing that. But it's kind of like, I'm correcting you. You're going to stay on the sidewalk while I'm with you. You can run wild other times, but while I'm with you, you're going to stay on the sidewalk. You with me there? The word punish means scourge. You go, ah, 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 no, God doesn't do that to us. God is always this kindly grandfather in the sky. And when I sin, he just sort of goes, mm, you shouldn't be doing that. The word punish says scourge. And there's a time because God loves us when God may step into our life and he may scourge us, which means take you through a painful correction process. Why? Because he's a, a malicious, bad God? No, because he loves us. And he steps in and he does that correction in order that we may continue to grow and to walk with him. Now, here's the point. The writer to the Hebrews says that if we participate with him in his directive and corrective discipline, we grow. If we participate. If we don't, what happens? (laughs) Do you really want to find out what God would do if you said to him, I don't care. I'm not going to listen to you. I'm not going to follow you. Do you really want to go there? Nobody in their sane mind would do that. When God our Father steps in to to correct us, to direct us, and to lead us, the natural response of God's people should be, Father God, forgive me. I've done wrong. Father God, show me where you want me to go, and I will follow as you lead me. And that's what the writer John, through the Holy Spirit, told us this. That the father's children live like children of God. If you've already believed in Jesus Christ as your savior, it's too late. You can't back out. God does not unadopt us. Once you're saved, you're adopted. Once you believed in Jesus Christ, you're adopted. And once you believed in Jesus Christ, you are responsible to start living a different life. Watch this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's that wonderful thought that someday we're going to be completely transformed Leave everything sinful behind us, and we will be like him fully, completely. (sighs) Good. So, 
let's sing songs and let's hold church services and be happy and, and wait until that happens. Nope. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Jesus said, you shall be holy as my father is holy. We're called to holy living. We're called to live differently. Now, you can't do it without Jesus, okay? Abide in me, he said, and that's when you will change. But we are called to live different lives. We are not supposed to live just as the world does. (laughs) Years ago, one of my elders retired. And at his retirement party, they announced that he had been an elder at my church. And somebody told me afterwards, he said, you know what? His staff said, we didn't even know he was a Christian. Like, oi. Oh, wow. In that environment, there was no real difference in the way he was living. More and more, our culture is getting that way. One of the horrible things about the fact is that when they do reports, when they do evaluation of Christians versus non-Christians, they're finding out the only difference is they go to church. There's not much difference in their value systems. There's not that much difference that is visible in terms of the way that they live. And he said, all who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Why? Because everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that when he appeared, so that he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. When we continue to live sinful lives and go, ah, I know I'm supposed to be pure, but it's more comfortable, it's easier for me to live like a, like a non-believer. When we're doing that, we're saying that Jesus' death on the cross was kind of like incidental, not important at all. He came to take away our sins. He came to take our sin upon himself, and he went through that terrible, terrible suffering to take the punishment for our sins. And so as Christians, we can't just sneer and look the other way. We can't because by doing so, we're mocking his death. He writes this, no one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Now notice the word continues, okay? The NIV, New International Version here, translated this this word specifically to capture that idea. How many of you, and I want to see your, your hands, how many of you have not sinned at all in this last month? Let me see your hands. Oh, I'm in good company. Yeah, Okay. We all commit sins every now and then. But God is saying, but if you live in sin, if that's where you go and you constantly live in sin, you need to realize that that is not the way a child of God lives. Why? Because God the Father would step in and discipline you. God the Father would step in and change your direction. And if you claim to be a follower of Jesus Christ and you live with sin dominating your life, something's wrong. This is not normal at all. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. Notice that. If you're living a continually sinful lifestyle, who's your father, really? Your father's the devil. And he's saying, come on. Think this through, children. If you're a child of God, you should be living differently. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go in sinning because they have been born of God. They cannot continue to live that kind of a sinful life because 
God has come into them. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. He says, if you claim to be a child of God, it'll show up in the way that you live that is different from the world. That doesn't mean we become obnoxious jerks. Okay? It means we start living true, pure, holy lives. The world will hate us, perhaps, for doing that, but that's tough. It doesn't mean we go about acting self-righteous and pretending we're, 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 we're righteous. By the way, that's the definition of a pastor. Did you know that? I pretend to be perfect and you pretend to believe me. <laughs> he says, here's the mark. Their lives become different. They start to live as children of God. And one of the strong marks is that they love their brother and sister. And Jesus said, that's the way the world knows. That you are my disciples. When you have the supernatural love for one another. All right. So, what have we learned? One, that God wants us to identify with him and live with him as our father. He adopts you the moment you believe in Jesus Christ. And if you've never yet believed in him, please do so today. So that you are adopted into God's family. Once we're in God's family, he takes responsibility for our lives. He wants to see us become more and more like Jesus. He wants to see us become more productive members of what he's doing in the world. And so he lifts us up. He motivates us. He encourages us. He finds us doing something right and moves us in that direction. So that he lifts us up. And where there are things in our lives that need to be taken away because we need to be cleansed, he will prune us. And he will take those things away and it hurts when he prunes. Sometimes it hurts really badly because sometimes he has to scourge us, he has to punish us. But he does it because he loves us. And as he does so, he's looking for us to become more and more like Jesus. I want to recommend a couple of Psalms, Psalm 139, but a Psalm 103. And here's what I recommend you do. Psalm 103, start there because we've used it this morning already. Read it over and over again. That's the best way to internalize God's word. Just read it from beginning to end, beginning to end, beginning to end. Just keep reading and you'll notice what happens is it becomes part of the internal wiring of, of you as a human being. I just want to go back to that fact that none of us had perfect fathers. Some of us had abusive fathers. And the way to deal with that is to displace from our minds and our memories the concept of who God is as our father in order to build it in. My dad grew up in a very cold household. No physical contact, no hugging. He was sent off to to, uh, boarding school from first grade onward. He and his sister used to meet at the fence between the two schools and interlace their fingers. They were so lonely for one another. And so my dad never knew how to hug us, how to tell us that he loved us. After he died, my aunt told me, your dad was so proud of you. And it was like, oh, wish he told me that, you know. But I underst- once I understood that, that, that he didn't have that kind of, of environment in his family, that, that, that's why he didn't know how to show it to us. Once I got that idea, and I'm recommending it for some of you, I realized that I need to take the initiative backwards because I've got a father in heaven who teaches me how to love. So I'm going to love my dad. And so the first Sunday we went over to his home after this penny dropped in my brain, I walked up to my dad as he was carving the meat and I put my arm around his shoulders and I said to him, 
I want you to know that I love you. He went absolutely rigid. I mean, he just stood there like, oh my gosh, what just happened? (laughs) He just went rigid, completely rigid. From then on, every Sunday, thank God I did that. We'd go to him and just hug him and say, I love you. He couldn't hug back. He couldn't respond. But I'm so thankful that God made me take that initiative. That may be something that you may need to consider doing with somebody in your life as well. The only way we can do that is when God our Father invades us. My last conversation with my dad was I said to him, I love you. And he said, me too. It's like, oh. It's like, I'm going to get that engraved on something. Because at least then he could say that just once. Me too. Let's pray together. Father, you chose the title of Abba, Father. And you want us to know you as Abba, Father. And so I pray, Lord God, that you would help us as your people here to become more and more children of the living God. And I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. I've taken us way over.